I think the CMO role is one that's expected to walk on water these days. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here, you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number seven, and today's guest is Jody Watson. Jody is a consultant, and she serves on the board for a number of companies. I think that you'll really enjoy her stories. Before we get started, a quick thank you, as always, to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at hippodirect.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready? Break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and today's guest is Jody Watson. Jody has had a long and distinguished career in direct-to-consumer marketing and general management. Jody, welcome to the show. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're, we're looking forward to having a great conversation. Um, where, where do we uh, find you today, Jody? Well, I'm currently sitting on my sailboat down in Mexico outside of Puerto Vallarta, and I'm getting ready to head out into the sea for one or two weeks to go sailing and try to escape a little bit of the hysteria that has formed on land. Yeah, so for our, our uh, listeners, we are recording this on March 27th, so we are knee-deep in the coronavirus, and for everybody that's listening, we hope that you and your family uh, are all safe and, and doing well. So, Jody, you live on the, the boat for a good part of the year, or you know, do you move around from land to boat? Yeah, we, um, I'm a traditional digital nomad and have been now for the last two years. So I sit on several boards and advisory boards, do some consulting work. As long as I have an internet connection and am generally close to an airport, I can do what I'm doing quite well. These days, because of the coronavirus, been working remotely and things have slowed down a fair amount, but looking forward to uh, helping any businesses that we can out there and ensuring that our neighbors and friends stay safe. Yeah, that's great. And and before we go into your background and and you know how you got into the business, talk a little bit about, you know, what what you see as the retail climate and and more so what it's going to look like as we come out of this uh, problem. Yeah, I think right now, Mark, I'm talking to a lot of the companies that I advise for and everybody is looking for that crystal ball, right? So we don't really know what's going to happen. My supposition just looking at what's been going on and living through things like 9-11 and the 2008 downturn, I think this is going to look more like 9-11 and more like a natural disaster or hurricane. So meaning we're going to have an initial terrible slowdown that's going to have a, a tremendous impact on a lot of people, service organizations, travel companies, but then we're going to kind of kick out of it at a very high rate, but then it's going to have another long and slow burn effect similar to what 9-11 did. So I think there's going to be periods of highs and lows. I think the stock market's going to remain quite volatile, but I think that retailers that have been struggling, as you know, and your readers know for many years now, they're going to really struggle with the debt that they're taking on and the burden of cash reserves that they're going to have to fight. Um, I think 
people are quickly shifting to a direct-to-consumer mindset if they haven't already been there. And so if you came into this thing with strong cash flow, strong cash reserves, and a strong direct-to-consumer business, I think you'll be able to weather the storm eventually, not without severe pain to you and your employees. But I do think you'll be able to weather the, the storm. Uh, I don't think companies that have a tremendous amount of debt or debt that's being collected soon uh, are going to fare as well. And I think companies that have been struggling to get their retail brick-and-mortar operations into a, an e-commerce or direct-to-consumer environment are going to fare as well. It's incredible how there's been this great trial period, it seems, for for people like us. You know, we, we live in uh, New Jersey. We've got tons of uh, grocery stores, you know, within one uh, square mile of where we live, but we've never really uh, used any of the delivery services. And now, you know, we've not been in a store for close to two weeks and, you know, trying, you know, using Instacart, using Fresh Direct, uh, using any of the others, Amazon uh, Fresh, getting lots of trial. Uh, it, it's an interesting uh, thing for people to now get an opportunity to do something that they may stick with after this is all over. Right. I think that's tremendously positive. And if we want to look at that positive side of the coin, you know, I've been in Mexico on my sailboat now for the last off and on for the last two years. And what I'm seeing in the last two weeks is incredibly positive. These businesses that only operate at farmers markets on Sundays here in Mexico are now figuring out ways to use WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger to place online orders and delivering it to people's homes and people's boats on in marinas. So I think people, the spirit of ingenuity is strong and necessity is the mother of invention, as people say. And I think that will continue. Um, where I'm seeing people really struggle is, you know, what I learned in 2008 was that we all needed to react even more and faster and more aggressively than we did. And so hopefully people are taking some of those lessons and uh, really cutting to the bone where they can and then cut some more. I don't think anyone's going to look back at this time and say, wow, I wish I was less aggressive in my uh, planning and cash reserve planning. Yeah, well, we're certainly seeing it in a uh, number of unemployment. Uh, actually, the numbers came out today. There were over 3 million uh, you know, people who have now applied for unemployment insurance uh, last week. That's the greatest number we've ever seen in this country at any one time. So uh, clearly companies in, in retail have had to furlough and lay off uh, hundreds of thousands of people. So hopefully we'll get back uh, to where we uh, had been heading uh, before this all uh, all started. So let's jump into, uh, you know, we all have um, our history and what got us to where we are today. Talk a little bit about where you grew up, family, and, and perhaps with the slant of how did your upbringing perhaps prepare you for the career that you wound up having? Yeah, so I grew up in the Pacific Northwest in Oregon, and I grew up in a small town as a suburb of Portland. And uh, my parents and my brother are still there today, and I'm very close to all of them. So it's been difficult being far away from them during this time, too. When uh, I went to Portland State University, and I was originally studying marine biology back in the day, and I, I talk about this as a pivotal moment in my career in that I was in a lab studying something under a microscope and uh, was having a full-blown conversation with that because no one else was in the lab, and I thought, oh dear, I'm in serious trouble because as an extrovert, I really like to be around people, and uh, here I am talking to something that I can't even see with the naked eye. So I thought, I need a pivot in my career, in my 
um, studies. And so I pivoted to business and marketing because I saw that there was a need for a tremendous amount of science applied to business. And so that's when I really started thinking about business as my career um, going forward. And I think that that has served me well because most of what we're doing today is about data. It's about hypotheses that we're trying to prove or disprove. It's about understanding uh, what our consumers are doing and getting close to those consumer behaviors every single day and data will help you determine that and I think you know consumers will show you the way to go they will help direct your company's strategies you can't entirely rely on them because as I like to say buyers are liars but you can do a lot of testing that can prove or disprove your hypotheses in business and uh, in marketing in particular yeah, I like the buyers or liars because uh, I haven't quite said it that way in the past. But you know, oftentimes we ask customers what they want, and they tell us, and then you know, when you give them something, they act differently because you know, in fact, we don't really know what we want until we're actually presented with the options. That's exactly right. And the old Henry Ford story of you know, if we would have asked them, people who are driving buggies and horses what they would have wanted they would have said a faster horse but in fact <laughs> there was the car so here we are and then you know I had some very opportune moments in my career to take a path down one direction or another and uh, luckily I had some great leaders that helped show me the way and encouraged me to embrace that data approach um, that led me into e-commerce and direct-to-consumer so you, you talk about uh, leaders and, and mentors, perhaps uh, maybe uh, embellish upon that, you know, who in your career um, has been, you know, one or, or two people that have really uh, helped set you uh, up for where you are? I think I've been extremely fortunate that, and I'm a big believer philosophically and otherwise, that everyone you work for teaches you something. They may not be what we consider our mentor because maybe we would never want to work for them again, but I do believe that we, we learn something from every single person that we work with. And the leaders that I've worked with have taught me so much, and I'm so grateful to each of them. I had an early mentor years ago at Circuit City. Um, his name is Dan Jenkins, and he taught me the value of data, the value of uh, crunching numbers and using numbers instead of emotion to make decisions and really took me under his wing and encouraged me to use that data to then inform my gut intuition and move forward with that. I had a number of mentors throughout my retail career subsequently then that taught me how to be a leader of leaders and um, build teams and the importance of recognizing who to hire, who to promote, how to hire fast or how to hire slow and fire fast and really not to give up on people that um, may be different than you because diversity can add value to your team. So there's probably too many to mention in this podcast, but I just feel fortunate that I have had many in my career. Yeah, I've heard the uh, comment about diversity. I interviewed uh, Matt Blonder, uh, who heads up marketing at Reebok. And, you know, he talked about how, um, you know, he sets his people out there not to go find clones of themselves, but to actually find different people, people with different interests and different backgrounds and different points of view. And that that makes for a better, you know, overall team structure. Uh, so that's, I couldn't uh, agree you know, more. Yeah. I that, couldn't that's agree great. more. 
Yeah. I think when I hear, when I hear people talk about, oh, well, they have this skill, they have that skill, but they're a little quirky. That's when my ears perk up because I like that. I think that's uh, somebody who could be a truth teller, somebody who could bring a different perspective and a different point of view. And it's up to the leader to manage those differences and to alternate my leadership talent to match them and to get the most out of them, not the other way around. Yeah, I've, I've tended to be very lucky in my career. And I think whatever success I might have had in, in my career or have had is really a function of very good hiring. And I've tended to focus on trying to find people that are smarter than me, which is quite easy. Um, but, you know, you, you go off and, and, and find some really, really talented people that can push you. Um, and then, you know, obviously you try to push them in, in different ways. Um, so I think that's, that's really important. I, I see that you have a master's in something called design methods. I'm, I'm not familiar with that. What, what, what is that? Yeah. So when I was working at Wolverine Worldwide, I had a, a leader come to me and say, we're doing an experimental master's program and we're sending two people from our company to do this master's program, but it's going to be a lot of weekends, a lot of nights and a lot of hard work. And we'd want to know if you'd like to, to do this. And I said, of course, yes, without even knowing what it was. But basically a master's in design methods is a master's in human centered design. It's a creative MBA. And so whereas an MBA is focused more on business mechanics and business acumen, uh, design methods, human centered design is taking those functions of management and applying them to industrial design and trying to understand what makes a consumer tick. So it's all the background that you would need to know to solve a problem. And since this master's degree, I can't quite look at a problem in the same way because consumers and people and users will tell you what the solution is if you approach it with the right methodologies and the right understanding of what that problem space is and then how to go solve it. And I think that skill set is highly lacking in business today. I think we need both sides of the coin, not only the business acumen piece that must be strong, those fundamentals must be strong and solid. We also need the creative way of understanding and digging in to see what a problem is basically before the problem exists. Got it. Interesting. Uh, so I learned something new, uh, a, a new degree. Um, <laughs> so let, let's um, move to uh, one of your early uh, roles uh, at Eddie Bauer. Um, so explain to me uh, and the listeners a little bit about what your role was at Bauer. And, and when you got there, what kind of a business was Bauer? You know, it was uh, for sure, um, everybody knows the products that they sold. But, you know, this was uh, late 90s, I, I guess, mm -hmm. right? That's right. Um, so what, what did you see when you got there? So when I joined Eddie Bauer in 1998, we had just been listed as one of the best places to work. And uh, Eddie Bauer was going strong. It was a very solid place that was focused on the outdoor space and the core part of their business, but also was looking at diversifying in many different areas. So we had a work division, we had a home division, and I was hired to do uh, field marketing. So it was really more of a retail specific job and also credit marketing. So at the time, Eddie Bauer had a really robust loyalty program, a credit card program, and uh, those were tied to some credit packages. And I knew nothing about credit card marketing at the time. So I kind of had to teach myself that. But in very short order, 
I took on additional roles and additional functions there. And then uh, probably right around my first year, I had a business leader who I would definitely consider a mentor come to me and say, hey, we have four people on this team that's called iMedia. And uh, that was early days of the internet. And we would like you to join our team. I've talked to your boss and she's agreed. I said, you know what? I think I'm good. I'm going to stay in this catalog marketing role. I'm going really? to stay working in my retail brick and mortar division, but thank you. I'm flattered for you asking me. And uh, lucky for me, she didn't give up that easily. And uh, she convinced me to join. So I was the fifth person, I believe, to join the internet division at Eddie Bauer. These were early days and it was a rocket ship. It was super fun. And we, a lot of the fundamentals that we put in, in 1998 are still in place today. This idea of affiliate marketing, search, using Google, um, using marketplaces, those things are stronger than ever. So it taught me a lot about taking a chance and a risk, but it also taught me a lot about just direct to consumer and e-commerce in general. In those days, Google was really Yahoo. It was, it was. And, uh, you know, some other names too that have since gone by the wayside. I mean, AOL is where Eddie Bauer had our store when we first started. Um, that was our e-commerce store. So this was, you know, I'm really dating myself now, but <laughs> these were very early days of the internet. And, and do you re recall back the feelings that, you know, you, so now you have, you have physical stores. Uh, I don't remember if they had outlet stores at that moment in time, but um, we did have a few. Yeah, and they yeah, had a very uh, vibrant catalog business, and now you've got an e-commerce business. So were the businesses operated in silos, or do you feel like you know there was good uh, sharing of and collaboration? I think uh, at that point, there were a lot of silos. Maybe some exceptions were in the direct marketing division, where I basically sat. But the direct marketing division was essentially a catalog business. There wasn't a lot of recognition that e-commerce was, in fact, direct marketing at that time. And so we were sort of looked at as, oh, those crazy people over in the side there that are doing this <laughs> internet thing or this iMedia thing. And we don't know where it's going. And I even had doubts myself. So it was quite siloed. But I think as Eddie Bauer learned quickly and I think did an outstanding job of was to leverage some of those skills. One of the things that Eddie Bauer did uh, early days of when the internet was growing extremely fast, and this was later on in my tenure there, is we took ourselves into a new building and a new space, an open work environment, and all of our team members were together and we were basically given carte blanche in terms of how to operate and how to run, but it wasn't, we weren't hamstrung by the overarching bureaucracy of the rest of the organization because it was a retail organization or catalog organization. And so that helped us grow incredibly quickly. And then when we were at a level of stability, we were able to be then, you know, brought back into the organization and integrated into the organization. I think that's still a great lesson for today's businesses. Yeah, it's very similar to uh, experience I had, uh, although we didn't have stores, but I got to a business that was called Brylane, which was all catalogs uh, yes. back in, in the early 2000s. And um, they had, you know, by the time I got there, they already had a standalone web business. They had a, you know, I was the CMO of the company. It all reported to me. It was separate and distinct. There was a CTO. There was, you know, online merchants and, and everybody separate and distinct from the catalog 
Um, and in my first six months, the goal was to evaluate that structure. And, and now in 2001, we ultimately, you know, pushed it all back together and said, look, we're one brand. We just happen mm-hmm. to allow the customer to buy, you know, over the phone or in those days still through the mail or, or online. So, um, you know, a lot changed uh, since then for sure. So yes, definitely you, you move on from, uh, Eddie Bauer and then you go to William Sonoma. So great company has been for many years, multiple brands. So how was that now you were, you know, you come from a company, one brand, and now there are multiple brands. What was your role at, at Sonoma? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing was by the time I left Eddie Bauer, I was working with the other businesses within Eddie Bauer too. So we thought about them as separate brands, but then also Eddie Bauer was owned by Spiegel Group, which had Crate and Barrel at the time, Spiegel, Newport News, and was owned by Otto Versand. So we were part of a portfolio driven organization for quite a long time. And so that wasn't necessarily new or foreign to me when I went to Pottery Barn. And I think that definitely helped me because a lot of people didn't have that experience at the time. And uh, I remember, you know, it's Williams-Sonoma Pottery Barn. uh, There were seven brands at the time I started there. And I reported entirely my entire career there, I reported to Beth Gum, who is definitely one of my mentors and still is a great friend today outstanding marketer, outstanding leader, outstanding boss. And one of the things I remember when I first got to Williams-Sonoma was trying to prove why we should overinvest in the internet and it wasn't going to be at the negligence of the catalog business. And so we had to demonstrate, I'll never forget the, the bar chart that we put together, that as the catalog business was decreasing, the internet business was increasing. And it, and as we were able to match back those customers, we saw, hey, lo and behold, they're not new or different people. They're the same people. They're just shifting their behavior. And now, of course, you think about that and it's like, well, of course, that's a silly conclusion that you drew. But at the time, it was fairly groundbreaking because we didn't have the visibility to the consumer behavior and we thought this internet thing was eventually just going to go away. So um, I think that recognition of um, support and also recognition that really e-commerce is just another direct consumer channel was what put Williams-Sonoma Inc. ahead of the game and ahead of the curve now. And I think today over 50% of their businesses transacted online. Were were they late to the game um, in in your recollection uh, with respect to going uh, into digital commerce? They were, they took a lot of heat for that. I think, um, Their CEO at the time talked about being almost two years late to the game, but really defended it because he believed that they wanted to understand it. Whether that was true or not, it actually ended up working, I think, in their favor because they were able to put into place a lot of the functions and disciplines needed to effectively run that e-commerce business. And even up until the time that I left, I think, Sonoma was quite slow to adopt some of the more aggressive tactics um, of growing the e-commerce business. But because they were such a healthy, well-understood direct-to-consumer catalog business, and because they were so close to their consumer because of the catalog business, I think it didn't, in the end, hurt them, probably help them. All right. You've been in in so many businesses that are performance based and require, you know, data analytics and and metrics. You know, are there any kind of, you know, Jody Watson specific metrics that you kind of harken back to and say, these are the, the handful of things that I really need to know every day, every week about my business that really gives me a sense of the health of what I'm doing? Yeah, I, I think I'm not sure they're specific to me. Um, I think 
they're KPIs that a lot of my peers and I'm sure you use as well. But I tend to look at a dashboard every day to see who's coming, who's going, what those bounce rates are, what the conversion is, and then looking at um, digging in deep into each of those marketing tactics to see how they're performing. These days, though, I like to look at a broader metric of definition and influence because I know that some of the tactics that I might be using in internet are influencing a sale in a store or even in a catalog call center. And so you don't want to just measure the ROI or ROAS of that tactic based on the last attribution or even the attribution of the transaction. I think we still haven't pivoted to a point where we can measure the P&L of the customer versus the P&L of the channel or the company. And until we get to that point, truly get to that point, not just words for it, I think we're going to make some wrong decisions or have some unintended consequences about where we spend money. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, as I, you know, prep for this and, and for the other shows, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, I like to, to say is the A word. Um, I've been in, in doing <laughs> some uh, moderation of, of some sessions lately. And, um, you know, the A word being attribution, it, it seems right. to come up all the time. But, you know, in, in, in your businesses, you've had to deal with that concept. Maybe it wasn't called attribution at the time. But when, when you look at these businesses, do, do you feel like, ones that you advise today have a good enough understanding about where they should be spending the next dollar of marketing that they may have available? Not entirely. I wish I could say yes. And I wish I could say yes for a number of reasons. One, we've been doing this for a long time and it seems like we should be there, but I think people have a false sense of confidence around this area. And I also think that as a CMO, you rely on your teams tremendously to make the right decisions. And as you push down those decisions in the organization, which is the right thing to do, it tends to, you tend to lose sight of what the overarching goals are for the organization instead of your individual place in it. And so that again, comes back to leadership to make sure that people really understand how what I'm doing over here is impacting the broader goals. And I've been disheartened to talk to a lot of people that are in entry-level positions, in positions in marketing teams that are extremely important, but not understanding how their work ladders up to the greater ROI goals or greater strategies in the organization. And so that's either a lack of leadership or lack of communication from that leadership, but it's incredibly important for people, especially new marketers, to understand that. And I think, you know, bringing it back to today with COVID-19, as we're seeing fewer people go out to the, sto out to the stores and purchase and transact at the store, you're going to have more people working on desktop because they're home. Well, we know that desktop converts at a higher level than mobile, which is great. Um, we also have more uh, trackability with an online order versus a store order. And so all those things really make, make it important to have people on your team that understand those direct-to-consumer functions. Yeah, the call out about uh, conversion rates on desktop and mobile is an interesting one. You know, in the businesses that I've been in and, you know, trending over time, you know, the the traffic percentage of traffic is is obviously grown quite significantly on mobile. We know the conversion rates on mobile are substantially lower. And that's a real conundrum, you know, for a lot of businesses because it's it's not like we're driving the traffic to mobile based on our tactics. It's just the way the consumer is shopping. Um, so right. it will be interesting to see if these businesses are seeing um, a, a shift in where that traffic is coming from. Good call out on that one. 
The devil's in the details. You've probably heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life. Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that can make the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who has helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com. So, you know, you mentioned the CMO. Have you been a CMO in, in title um, in, in businesses? or? Is it- yes, uh, I was acting CMO at Petco, my last corporate gig. And that was yeah. alongside my role of being the SVP of direct-to-consumer slash e-commerce. And so I had the marketing teams, the creative teams, customer service team, and all of the direct-to-consumer teams reporting to me. Um, I've also been the CMO at a smaller company, Bag Borrower Steel, and that was in 2008. The worst year to go to a startup or the worst yeah. year to go to a capital-intense <laughs> business, which was going gangbusters until about mid-September. Right. And, and so as a CMO, somebody who had a CMO title and, and had the role, have you seen a change uh, over the, the years in what is expected of, of CMOs? Absolutely. I think the CMO role is one that's expected to walk on water these days. Uh, it's the chief customer officer. It's the chief revenue officer. It's chief marketing officer. It's chief digital officer. It's the one that Uh, the CEO relies heavily on, but is expected to know all of these things and have a very well-rounded background, but also a specific background in certain areas. So it's difficult to achieve for a lot of people. And you have to be in the business for some time and also have to have maybe a thoughtful career progression in order to experience it. I think it's probably an unfair role to expect today. So when people are applying for CMO roles, you really need to look at what's expected in that job description because it's different everywhere that I've seen. And what people value may not be in that job description for that role. So trying to understand the culture of the organization you're entering as a new CMO is is equally as important as what you're being told that is expected in terms of results or outcomes. All right. And, and, you know, as a CMO, um, depending upon the company and the scope of responsibility and the fact that you've been on, on digital so much, uh, you, you can't really drive these digital businesses without technology. So how do you think about, you know, tech investment and where is the best place to put those dollars? You know, how do you evaluate the, the third parties that, you know, are bringing to you seemingly every day, you know, something new that you could put into your, your website? Yeah, I think I've been fortunate that because I was in digital early, I got involved in tech very early. And most of the tech that I've been involved with um, has been either under my purview, either through the web development team or even a close partnership with the CIO, a very close partnership with the CIO. And I think you have to constantly constantly be looking at what your technology needs are, but also being very open to what's new and what's coming. So that requires a lot of conversations, a lot of potential meet and greets, and it can be overwhelming because you have your day-to-day job. You can't just be talking to vendors all day long, but I think it's really important to keep your eyes and ears open. And I also am very much a believer that I'm a student of this economy and I'm a student of this business. And as soon as you start thinking that you know it all is when your arrogance is going to kill you. (laughs) So I think you have to be really open to what's new. And tech is is moving way too fast to stay up on it. Uh, 
six months ago, I would have said that maybe community and social wasn't as important as search. Today with COVID-19, I think it's almost more important because it's the thing that's giving people uh, trust and authenticity. It's helping you replace your content needs in terms of photography and uh, the content hungry machine that digital is. So I think it changes all the time and you have to be up to that. You know, you, you talk about, you know, COVID and, you know, what companies are, are doing. Um, I had the CEO of uh, uh, Levi's on the show uh, not too long ago, Chip Berg. And, uh, you know, Levi's has done quite a bit you know, being a socially conscious company. Have you been involved with some companies that, you know, you would feel really good about, you know, the, the stand that they took and, and the direction that they, you know, were, were leading both employees and customers? I think a lot of the companies that I'm working with right now are taking a pragmatic, but also employee first kind of approach. Will it be enough? I don't know. I think that organizations that put their employees first are unfortunately not as common as they should be. Your employees are the people that are going to talk positively about your brand and continue that word of mouth that continues positively. And these days it's way too easy to look online to see through Glassdoor or even through Twitter, how they're, how your employees are feeling about your organization. They can be your biggest brand advocates. So making sure that you do right by them and involve them and treat them with respect and transparency, even when you have to make the, the hard decisions, they're going to support the organization because they understood the whys behind it. When leadership teams have been closed door and are not forthcoming with information or the decision-making process that's led them to where they are today, I think that's when people get really disgruntled and squirrely and don't trust their management and leadership teams. Yeah, I agree. So um, you spent uh, quite a bit of time at a company called uh, Wolverine Worldwide. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, everybody knows it as Wolverine, but uh, perhaps they do. Maybe tell us a little bit about the company and, and the role that you played there. Yeah, so Wolverine Worldwide is a 150-plus-year-old manufacturer of footwear and apparel, and they own and operate brands like Merrill, Sperry, Saucony, Keds, Wolverine, the work boots, Cat Work Boots, Harley-Davidson boots, really a lot of the businesses or a lot of the companies that you're familiar with by brand name. And I was originally hired to build and drive their e-commerce business and uh, eventually moved into being over having oversight of all the stores, branded stores, outlet stores, multi-channel, multi-branded stores, as well as the internet. So it was a great experience. I worked there for about seven years. And, you know, funny enough, I went to work there after 2008. And I wasn't very interested in moving out of the West Coast. But just quick sideline story. The woman that convinced me to join the e-commerce division at Eddie Bauer way back when she had become an executive recruiter. And as an executive recruiter, she'd heard that I was going to lose my job or I had lost my job at the startup in Seattle. And she called me and said, Hey, I have this great opportunity. She told me about it. And I got really excited. And then she said it was in Michigan where Wolverine Worldwide is based. And I said, well, I've never been to Michigan. I've no interest in going to Michigan, but thank you for thinking of me. Long story short, she convinced me to go and I ended up staying there for seven years and it was an amazing company, an amazing job. And I met incredible people. 
it's amazing in every one of these shows that I've done now, uh, networking, maintaining relationships with people that, you know, you've met along the way always seems to come up and, and obviously is so important. Yeah. It's even more than not burning bridges, right? It's maintaining those relationships. You're absolutely right, Mark. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've been lucky in my career. I've been able to, to do that and maintain relationships and, and it's great. And, and look, we, we're in a, in a world now where being able to do it is so much easier than, you know, it, it, it probably was in, in the day without, you know, email and LinkedIn and, and things like that. So when, when you were at, at Wolverine and, and you were at a bunch of multi-title brands and, and I have been too, did you ch find challenges in being able to invest and, and manage each of these businesses equally or, or maybe not equally, but, you know, one's always, you know, usually one is the big the big one, and then you've got a bunch of little ones, perhaps. And at the end of the day, when you look at where are you going to devote your time, you tend to want to devote your time to where you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck and, and your return on your time. How did you think about that? Yeah, it's, I'm kind of chuckling because I think that's actually when you and I first met. We were both at multi-branded portfolio companies. And I will say that I think your superpower is networking and, and uh, reaching out to people. So bravo to you for that. But I Thank I think you. we were I think we were talking at the time and it's true it's sort of uh when you're working in big portfolio brands like that you tend to have almost triage techniques which unfortunately if you're with some of those smaller brands you don't get all the attention you don't get all of the resources that you want or deserve so yeah we had those challenges and I think first it happens that you need to have good relationships with the brand leaders in the, in every one of those divisions. And then when you tell them the bad news that you can't devote the resources or the time or the people right now to help them, they may not be happy about it, but they're not going to hate you for it. And they understand that you have a remit as well. And so it was challenging because I'm, I tend to be wanting to be a pleaser and I tend to want my clients, my internal clients, and that's how I thought of them to be all happy but you can't make everyone happy in that environment. And so I guess just explaining the reality of what you have to work with and hope that their understanding is as good as you can get. Yeah. So thank you for that. Uh, that's a good thing for my superpower, being a good connector, I guess. <laughs> it is. It is your superpower. <laughs> uh, and that is when we met, uh, when you were at Wolverine. So, uh, and I think I was at Warnico at the time. You were. And mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, multi-brand business. Um, how, how do you think about failure? You know, people look at failure differently. Some of them, uh, some people look at it, well, you know, it's bad. You know, we didn't do well. Um, how do you look at it? I think failure... I mean, I hate failure, which we never had to fail, but we do have to fail in order to learn. And if you're not failing, you're probably not learning. And if you're not learning, you're not growing. And so the benefit of failure ultimately is that you're a better human, you're a better person, uh, you're a better friend, and you're a better business person. So I think personally about failure that, you know, I try to do things that scare me. And I think courage is only that, that you do things that scare you, but it still requires courage. In work, you're dealing with failure every day because you're doing testing, you're trying to tweak out uh, responses and understanding what the customer is. I think failure can be a big bet and you can lose big, and I've had a few of those. But I think if you're failing small and failing fast, you can learn things that can turn 
chances into risks. And so I'm about taking risks in business, not about chances. Chances are rolling the dice with someone else's money. Risks are more calculated and more thoughtful and using information to the best of your ability to minimize that expense or damage one to your brand, your customer, or to your business. So we're getting down to the end of our uh, time together, uh, mostly because Jody needs to get back on the boat and uh, sail off into the sunset. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm just envisioning that now. I think it's going to be great. Uh, but we usually end uh, the show, uh, Jody, uh, with me asking our guest uh, a number of questions, uh, just quick and dirty. First thing that comes okay. into your, your mind and you ready? Ready. All right, go. All right. A, a brand that you admire or that inspires you? I have to say perennially, it's got to be Nike because Nike has, I grew up in Nike, with Nike. I was in Portland, Oregon when they started. I've known them for a long time. They consistently have incredible results and people consistently love and follow them and buy them. All right. We've heard Nike before. That's great. Usually it's Apple, um, but Nike's a, a good one too. Uh, what is the favorite app on your phone? Oh, it probably these days it's a weather app because I'm <laughs> checking uh, weather so much on this on the sailboat and uh, that app is called Windy. So if you're a, got any weather <laughs> fanatics out there, love it. Um, I, yeah, I'll stick with that one. Okay, the last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? Uh, probably two. One was Calix and Corolla. I ordered some flowers for someone uh. that I love and uh, DoorDash food to be delivered. Yeah, well, I guess you're gonna have. That's gonna be the last time you're gonna use that for a while, unless DoorDash has a new uh, program to get you out in the water. That's right. That's right. I have a nephew who works at DoorDash. I'll uh, oh, good for him. Offices. Yep, I'll uh, I'll tell him to to work on that. Um, <laughs> something that you're not good at, but that you wish that you were. Uh, painting. I love to paint, but I'm not great at it. Okay, a charitable organization that you're passionate about. Sea Shepherd. I spent a little over two months volunteering aboard a 50-year-old Coast Guard cutter about two years ago doing hurricane relief in the Caribbean. And uh, Sea Shepherd is generally a marine conservation organization. They do good work. It's all about direct action. So unlike a lot of charitable organizations, your money goes straight to the volunteers or the ships that are actually housing the volunteers to do the work. Yeah, that's great. Good work there. If you had one superpower, what would it be? To breathe underwater. I'm an avid scuba diver, so, you know, changing tanks is kind of a pain. <laughs> okay. And then the last one, other than your family, what's your most prized possession? I think right now is my sailboat. It's sort of my house and the place that I can go and get away from some of this craziness right now. It's just a very safe place that keeps me safe and also entertained at the same time. Well, that's good. We wish you uh, a good trip and a safe journey and, and stay away from all the viruses uh, or the virus that's out there. Jody, let uh, our listeners know where uh, they can reach you out on social media. Sure. Um, you can always find me on LinkedIn, Jody Watson, J-O-D-I. And uh, you can find me for fun on the sailboat at living on a boat, uh, living underscore on underscore a underscore boat. And uh, sometimes I'll do Yelp reviews and Twitter is mostly my political outlet. So don't go there. 
<laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll let you know if I want to go there after I see what you have to say. <laughs> All right, Jody. Hey, th this was really good. Uh, I really appreciate your time. It was nice to catch up with you and um, we'll be uh, chatting with you once you get back to, to the land. Great. Thanks for everything you're doing, Mark. I really appreciate it. And also thanks for the volunteer work that you're doing on LinkedIn. I think it's really important. It gives people some support and help along the way. You're a great guy. Well, thank you. That's very nice of you to say. I, I will tell you that um, it's been amazing. Um, uh, I, I put out, you know, that offer and, you know, with uh, to give uh, some direct to consumer early stage and startup folks. And um, the response was incredible. You know, you, you do something like that and you, you hope that somebody takes you up on it. Um, but I've been very, very uh, pleased at how many have. And I'll tell you from each one that I've, I've done, Jody, the amount that I'm learning about you know what these what the struggles are and and how th people are thinking about their business it's really incredible so uh, that's but thank awesome. you for that that's yeah. great all right we'll Good for we'll you. talk to you soon take care okay thank you that's it today's game ball goes to Jody Watson for coming on the marketing playbook to me today's three game winning marketing plays were as follows number one consumers will generally show you the way to go. Often, you cannot rely on what they tell you in research. Jody used the line, buyers are liars. But well-thought-out customer insights are critical and can serve to validate your hypotheses. Number two, as we heard about the early development of the web business at Eddie Bauer, they carved out a separate team to build and support that channel. Doing so allowed these people to work at a different pace and perhaps take some risks that the core business might not ordinarily have done. If you want to develop something new, it's not always best to have your core team take it on as their second job. They still have their day job to focus on. And number three, we have to fail in order to learn. And if you're not failing, then you simply are not learning. And if you're not learning, you're not growing. Don't be afraid to fail. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us at Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at DetailsInteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details.